so having a chronically ill spouse, whether they're dealing with an autoimmune issue or they're dealing with cancer, for guys, there are no resources out there. There is nothing out there. There are no Facebook groups. There's one Facebook group for chronically ill spouses. That's it. That's all I found. This is Getting to Yes, the podcast with leaders from all walks of life exploring their successes, mistakes, and lessons learned in influence, persuasion, and getting others to say yes, and then taking an insight or two to help you achieve even greater things. Today's episode is going to be very different from what we normally discuss on Getting to Yes, but it's nonetheless a very important topic. And you'll hear from Steve Ryder, an internationally syndicated broadcasting professional overseeing the production team of Focus on the Family when it got inducted into the National Radio Hall of Fame in 2008. He then left his award-winning stint in 2010 to help spearhead what ended up being the largest rollout in radio history at Dr. James Dobson's Family Talk. And has since become really an in-demand podcast strategist. But I invited him to share his advocacy work for Never Alone, No Patient Left Behind legislation, and really talk about dealing with grief while trying to run a business and the most important lesson from having a chronically ill spouse. So Steve, welcome to the show. Huli, <laughs> my man, it is so good to see you. Thanks for having me on. Now, really wanted to have you share your story with a larger audience. When you first shared this with me last year, it was definitely a very emotionally compelling story. And again, advance notice for listeners, we're going to go deep here. And it's a tough subject. Yeah. Why don't we start maybe a little bit your background and then what led to the creation of the Never Alone Project? Yeah. So I'm one that is fortunate in that I'm doing something that I've loved nearly my entire life. I hit a crisis in college where I was like, I wasn't quite sure what I wanted to do. I was looking mm -hmm. to get into sports medicine and at University of Wisconsin Lacrosse, which is one of the best sports medicine schools in the Midwest, I wasn't accepted into their sports med program to become a physical therapist. And basically I didn't get a dorm. Like right before I went to school, they said, you don't have a dorm. So all of a sudden I got to work and I wasn't able to volunteer the number of hours that I needed to. And it just mm -hmm. kind of spiraled from there. But I took some time off. And during that time, I remember being in fourth grade. My uncle bought me a Fisher Price cassette recorder and it would make radio shows with my friends. And then in sixth grade, I hosted a kids news segment at a local radio station. And then when I was a senior in high school, we were doing a radio spot for the morning announcements for one of my classes. And... One of my classmates who I knew since the first grade, she looked at me and she said, Steve, I've never seen you smile like this before. Mm. And I remembered those three things and I was like, radio, audio production. Yeah, that I do love that. And so I got my foot in the door at Focus in 97 when I finished school and just worked my way up through the ranks, became the chief audio engineer. When we were inducted to the Radio Hall of Fame in 2008, we beat out Dr. Laura and we beat out the quote unquote king of radio, Howard Stern. And it was an incredible career. It really was. It was a great time. We were doing some really great radio work. We were the first quote-unquote religious broadcast ever inducted into the Radio Hall of Fame, which is another accomplishment. 
So when I left in 2012, I just burned out physically. I just completely and totally burned out from family talk because the money never really came in. I was doing two daily radio broadcasts with half the staff. I had to focus to do one and it was killing me. I couldn't step back from the workload and figure out, okay, how do I get this done Mm -hmm. with the, how do I streamline the processes? Because we were always doing things the focus way. And when I left and I finally recovered that love for media reawakened. And that's when I really started to put some effort into growing my audio production my media production business, Right Turn Media, and mm-hmm. where we produce podcast, radio, and audiobooks. And then we're also starting to get into doing more and more video. I've got some really super talented video guys. And it was during that time that I was really starting to put effort into Right Turn Media that my wife, Elizabeth, who in early on in her marriage, she was diagnosed with lupus and rheumatoid arthritis. And she started to have a lupus flare up that the doctors were misdiagnosing because all the lupus markers looked like it was in remission. Mm-hmm. And so in summer of 2013, she started to kind of go on this trajectory down real slowly. Doctors thought it was hormonal. Then they thought it was this. Then they thought it was that. And finally, in mm-hmm. March of 2014, she just went to the hospital after being basically bedridden for a few months I had to help get her up out of bed. I had to help get her socks on. I had to help get her to the shower, those kinds of things. She wasted away to about 86 pounds when she finally went into the hospital. And the doctors were like, okay, let's just treat it like lupus and just see what happens. And sure enough, within six hours, she was getting up by herself, going to the bathroom by herself and able to put on her own socks, which is something she hadn't done in months. And so she recovered so quickly from that, that some undiagnosed pulmonary hypertension raged. So to backtrack a little bit, for listeners that don't know, pulmonary hypertension is basically where your heart is trying to push blood into your lungs to get it oxygenated. But the lungs aren't accepting the amount of blood that the heart is trying to push in. And so that back pressure causes the right side of the heart to eventually to weaken, enlarge, and eventually fail. And it's a slow, slow death. And it's pretty much fatal. The only real cure right now is a lung transplant, which is fraught with complications and problems. And anyone that's ever dealt with any kind of transplant can understand just how that radically changes your life. And when she was diagnosed with that pulmonary hypertension... Her doctor came to me and he said, Steve, I don't want to be the bearer of bad news, but there's a real possibility your wife's not going to be around to see your youngest graduate high school. He went on to explain that it was either the meds that they currently have, eventually they stop working. So they titrate up, titrate up, Mm -hmm. titrate up until there's no more net benefit. And then eventually the heart failure just takes over. And the second way that people die with pulmonary hypertension is because they have this Hickman line going into their chest, pumping in meds 24-7. It presents a significant infection risk. Most pH patients, they get one infection every year. And so when COVID happened, Elizabeth thought she had COVID. We knew it could be something really serious. So we really locked down hard and she got a COVID test. It was negative. But over the course of the next seven weeks, that first seven weeks of the pandemic, she was still dealing with a lot of those symptoms and her doctor would see her virtually because we had an oxygen condenser in our room. They could just pump up the oxygen as needed. 
and um, her doctor was just treating her virtually. And unfortunately, you can't diagnose pneumonia or a blood infection over a virtual visit. And so on April 29th, at about three in the morning, she woke up throwing up, not even able to keep a sip of Gatorade down. We knew at that point she needed to go to the hospital and it wasn't COVID. She was retested for COVID. It was negative again. It was pneumonia and a blood infection. And so she got hospitalized. And that's when this fight for me to try to get in there really started to happen in earnest. Yeah, I guess that's where the Never Alone project started. And I'm sure, Steve, you're going to go a little bit more deeper into how that transpired. But just to backtrack, seeing you having an active career, what is some of the learning lessons that you garnered from working with somebody that requires that much care? Yeah. So having a chronically ill spouse, whether they're dealing with an autoimmune issue or they're dealing with cancer, for guys, there are no resources out there. There is nothing out there. There are no Facebook groups. There's one Facebook group for chronically ill spouses. That's it. That's all I found. And there are tons of groups out there for chronically ill individuals, whether it's MS, whether it's lupus, autoimmune in general, whether it's fibromyalgia. There are all kinds of these groups that to help people with, that have chronic illnesses. But there is only one out there and the group on Facebook for chronically ill spouses. And I didn't find it until after Elizabeth had died. And often, especially guys, we want to fix it. It's inherent in our nature. We're fixers and we want to do, it's the most helpless feeling for a guy to have a wife that is just chronically ill and there's nothing really you can do about it. I'd make all these health suggestions to her. Hey, we clean up our diet and we saw some improvement with that. And I'd encourage her to exercise and she hated exercising. That was a constant tension where I'm like, you could be doing more to keep yourself yeah. healthier. And yeah, yeah. yeah I, oftentimes the spouse is probably the least powerful in really making change happen because you're the spouse and you need to find that alternate person that can stand in on your behalf, be the patient advocate, just like in, let's say, integrative oncology, where all too often patients are left alone and there's the conventional treatment, but there's so much more we could be doing that just ne never makes its way to the front line. Yeah, yeah. It's something that after Elizabeth died, I had a number of guys that just came out of the woodwork my wife is dealing with this. My wife is dealing with that. It was, it, all of a sudden, they just became these really close friends where I would check in on them and text them occasionally. How's your wife, how's your wife doing? But then I'd also ask them, how are you doing? Mm -hmm. Because we live in these silos as guys so often with not a whole lot of really close friends. And I've really wondered about this lack of resources for men, husbands, that have a chronically ill spouse and really kind of been thinking and just marinating on that. Like, is there something in my future to really help these guys? And so I don't know. That's something I'm just kind of marinating on. But when Elizabeth was diagnosed with that pulmonary hypertension and Dr. Badish 
the head of pulmonology at University of Colorado Hospital, came to me and he said, I don't want to be the bearer of bad news, but there's a real possibility your wife's not going to be around to see your youngest graduate high school. That hit me like a ton of bricks because Caleb was eight at the time. And he's basically saying the next 10 years she could be gone. And so mm-hmm. when I recover, it took me a couple days to really recover from that shock. The seed was planted that this could be my journey. And every time I would work, because I worked on a family broadcast, marriage and parenting broadcast, whenever we would touch about grief, whenever we would touch about losing a spouse, there was something in my spirit that just said, pay attention, pay attention. And so when Dr. Badish told me that, your wife may have 10 years. Once I recovered from that shock, I made the conscious decision in my mind that I was going to do everything in my power, everything in my power to love my wife to the best of my abilities so that if something happened, I'd look back from that moment that she was diagnosed until whatever day that happened with no regrets. And so every night I would lay in bed, pray with Elizabeth, kiss her, tell her I loved her, roll over, and I would look back at my day and I I would mentally look back at my day and say, did I love my wife to the best of my abilities? And if I didn't, all right, I'm setting my intention tomorrow to do an even better job. So that way, no regrets. And obviously, we've jumped forward in the story. She passed away after 21 days in the hospital. I was never once allowed in. But I was having a cigar with a buddy of mine that I used to work with who's a marriage and family therapist in town. And we were just hanging out, having a cigar. And he asked me, Steve, do you have any regrets? I said, no. Kind of looked at me a little puzzled, and he asked it again. Steve, you have no regrets. None. He looked even more puzzled. Sat back for a minute, and he's like, Steve, you really have no regrets. And I said, no. And I went on to tell that story. Mm -hmm. He was in awe of this. And I went on to tell him that I set my intention after she was diagnosed. And so many of us, we're going through life. Uli just chasing and trying to get these accomplishments. But let's remember the most important things in our lives, which are our families and our closest friends and our relationships. And so I'd really recommend every night Look back at that day and say, did I love my spouse? Did I love my kids? Did I love my close friends to the best of my abilities? And if you didn't, and if you didn't set that intention for the next day, because we have no idea when things are going to change. All of a sudden, a car accident. All of a sudden, a cancer diagnosis. And you've got three weeks because it's pancreatic cancer. All of a sudden, and you're trying to cram all of this life into three weeks and or four weeks or a couple months, live your life. I don't want to sound morbid, but live your life as if there's no tomorrow. Be grateful for what you had and just make an impact with what you have right at this very moment. Yeah. And, and that, that for me is really the biggest lesson from what happened as well as having a chronically ill spouse. 
Yeah, there's the saying, you know, some people saying you only live once, but it's actually the opposite. You only die once. You know, you live every day and don't lose sight of this. Stop to smell the roses. And in, again, on other podcast episodes, I've said it, you will never find me crying sitting in my Ferrari. It's like, I'd rather not have a Ferrari, but be happy and healthy than strive for all these worldly possessions that in the big scheme of things, how much do they really mean? So thanks, thank you so much yeah. for sharing this part, this lesson. And I want to transition to probably the most heartbreaking part of your story. That's the genesis of the Never Alone Project, that yeah. your wife is admitted into the hospital during the early phase of COVID and serious lockdowns to the extent that even your loved ones cannot see you. So let's talk about that. Yeah, so when Elizabeth was hospitalized, friends started, I tried getting in and the answer was always no. As soon as she was in, I thought, okay, I know her doctors. We've got a great relationship with them. I know a bunch of her, we know a bunch of her nurses. We've got a great relationship with them. If I'm negative for COVID, and I was, the day that she was admitted, I also got tested for COVID and I was also negative. I thought, I'm negative, she's negative, I'll get in. And the answer was always no. And... And it wasn't from her doctors or her nurses. It was always the higher ups and the decision makers that we didn't know. And so they told me the only exception we're making is for imminent death, which, I mean, things can change in a heartbeat like they did for Elizabeth and you're not in there. And so friends started sending me Twitter posts and Facebook posts of people dying alone, people in the hospital recovering alone, families trying to get in, those sorts of things. And I saw that it's that that it was a, a really ultimately a worldwide problem. And I was surprised that there was nothing in any sort of legislation that protected a patient's right to visitation because we all know the studies. There are hundreds of studies that talk about the dangers of loneliness and isolation, decreasing health outcomes, and how having a loved one there aids in the healing process, increases health outcomes. Some studies say by more than 50%. And likewise, the loneliness and isolation, lonely and isolated elderly patients are 2.5 times more likely to die prematurely than their most socially connected peers. Women going through breast cancer treatment, if they're lonely and socially isolated, are five times more likely to die prematurely than their most socially connected peers. And so they know this stuff. And I asked, I would ask publicly, if they know this, was this the plan all along to completely lock down? Why not? Why don't they have stockpiles of personal protective equipment so that way they could allow one screened loved one per day, no time limits. Because one of the reasons they told me that they wouldn't let me in was, oh, we don't have the PPE to cover you. Well, did you not see this coming with SARS? Hmm. Did you not see this coming with swine flu? With bird flu? With MERS? With Zika? With West Nile? With Ebola? With any of those? Did you not see this coming? Was this the plan all along to lock people out? 
And so I tried every avenue that I could in order to try and get in there. My congressman tried. I had some state senators and state reps that were trying. I was getting media attention across the state to try and pressure the hospital. All I wanted to be there was with my loved one because I saw the power in 2014. She was in the hospital a total of five weeks between the two stays, two weeks for the lupus flare-up and then three weeks for the pulmonary hypertension where she went in with congestive heart failure and a significantly enlarged heart mm -hmm. where the doctors told me that very first day, Steve, this is an end-of-life kind of situation. And so the doctors were blown away at her recovery from the pulmonary hypertension because we were there 24-7. I'd be in there two or three days. Then her mom would be in there one or two. And we do this rotation where I'd bring in the boys. And so over those three weeks, she was down, slowly started recovering. And she had been in there for about a week and a half. And I decided that because I was picking up my mom, I was like, what's the least harmful thing I could do? Do I just drive up and drive back to Denver International Airport where I can see the hospital right there from I-225? You can see it right there from 225. Or do we head up a little bit early, bring the boys, grab euros from our favorite euro place and sit outside the hospital, FaceTime over dinner, and then wave to her from the van so she can see us. I thought that might encourage her because we were two days before Mother's Day. We did. We waved. They flashed the light to her room so we knew which room she was in. And then... She got super emotional at the end of the call. And whenever she got super emotional, her health would dip. I got a call at two in the morning. Your wife is bleeding in one of her lungs. We're moving her to the ICU. Don't come up. Two hours later, I get another call. We think we've isolated a couple small arteries. Don't come up. Mother's Day, she was super depressed because she's in the hospital alone on Mother's Day, not able to be with her boys. And that was not her. She never got depressed. That was the only time I've ever seen her get depressed in our entire 18 and a half years of being married, almost 20 years being together. And so she slowly started to recover from that. But because she had been on blood thinners all those years for the pulmonary hypertension, it presented a blood clot risk. And sure enough, the day before she was set to come home, a pulmonary embolism hit her lungs. She went into cardiac arrest. And the question has always been there. If they'd allowed visitation, she would have gone in sooner. Would that have saved her life? If her doctor had seen her in person and listened to her lungs and retested for COVID and they treated it with antibiotics, would she still be here? If we had been allowed in, if she had been wheeled out on Mother's Day weekend, would her health have dipped? Loneliness and isolation kill. And so that's why I created the Never Alone Project is because patients should have the right to one screened loved one per day, no time limits. And it needs to be written into federal law. So that way, no matter what's going on, a person can have one person there because it's not the job of the nurse. It is not the job of a doctor to hold hands and speak words of life and cast a vision for the future and encourage them and give them love. Because Uli, I have heard story after story after story of a loved one who didn't look like they were going to make it through the night. And so some heroic nurses would sneak a loved one in and they would rebound and come home. We need it in federal legislation. A patient's right to one screened loved one per day. 
no time limits. And that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to mobilize a grassroots movement to raise awareness about this issue so that way ultimately we can see federal change to protect that patient's right. Because no one, no one, no one should die alone. Yeah. How can listeners learn more about the Never Alone Project? You can go to neveraloneproject.org and um, there you can sign up for our email list. I don't send very many emails, maybe once a month right now. At most, I think I'll probably bump it up to two a month, whatever I get the staff around me to really be able to do that more more efficiently. Or you can also donate. We really need people to become monthly supporters. And so that way we can count on that revenue for hiring more staff. We have some big dreams. We have some big visions of a one season podcast that tells the story of what happened, why did it go wrong, how did this affect people, and what's a plan moving forward. I've got a former NPR producer who is really interested because her dad died without her and her sister there. And I've also been recommended to do a documentary. I've got a friend with a donor with connections at Netflix who's going to get me those connections at Netflix to start talking about a documentary. And if a listener had gone through something like that, a family member or a close friend went through some kind of a lone situation. We want to hear those stories. We want to hear those stories because it's the power of all of our collective stories that is going to be able to overcome what is a large, large, very influential and money pockets deep lobby that is opposing us every step of the way, which is the hospital association the Doctors Association, and the Nurses Association. They're all about protecting their members, which I get protecting, but we need to balance the need to protect doctors, nurses, staff, and other patients while giving the individual what they need. Because if we leave those individuals to die on the vine, we've lost our humanity. So there's one other thing. If you go to neveraloneproject.org, we have resources to help individuals in individual states be able to get what they need in order to talk to their state representative and their state senator. Because getting something done at the federal level, I've had friends that are very politically active. They say, Steve, it is like watching molasses trying to see something go through D.C. We can get something done at the state level. And there are a number of states that do have legislation, but all of those states, there is something flawed about every single piece of legislation, even The best state in the nation, Arkansas, which I believe has the closest thing to gold standard, no one knows about it. And so hospitals, and because there's no punishment for hospitals, hospitals are still locking people out in Arkansas. And so we need states to get on board with this to show Washington, D.C. that this is something real and something that is needed. Thanks, bud. Appreciate you. Well, Steve, thank you so much for sharing this very powerful story. As I said at the beginning... And this is a very different episode, but nonetheless, super, super important. I think I want to leave listeners with a call to action to go to the Never Alone Project, check out Steve's resources, think about donating and supporting this very important course. We'll put the links in the show notes. And with that, we'll see you next week. I believe mastering persuasion is one of the most essential skills in life and certainly in business because nothing ever happens without a yes. 
Yet we can only effectively influence other people's decisions when we truly understand how the brain makes those decisions. Once you master the decision-making formula, your message becomes ever more clear and influential. Join us next week for our newest episode of Getting to Yes. And if you enjoyed this episode, hit subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever else you're listening. And feel free to share it with colleagues and friends. I'm your host, Uli Iselo. See you next week.